So today we have Jesse Ramiro. My friend sent me some details about his book and about his YouTube videos. Jesse was a guard and also in the cops. And thank you for your time today, Jesse. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for inviting me, Sean. Appreciate that. What is your book called? There's going to be a link in the description box below this video, but I'd like you to tell everybody what your book is called and just why they should buy it. My book is called The Devil in the City of Angels. And what the book is about, it's, it's about my encounters with the diabolical. Now, why, do, why did I write this book? I, I wrote it because there's a lot of everybody. Everybody has experiences with the angelic and the preternatural. And a lot of people, that's kind of a taboo subject. A lot of people don't know what to say or how to say it or how to share it because they're thinking, man, they're going to think I have a tinfoil hat. And so a lot of people just kind of just suppress those encounters, those thoughts, and just kind of move on. I made it kind of a, a you know, a, a, a dinner table conversation by writing this book. I'm saying, this is the world that we live in. There are invisible principalities and powers and uh, don't be afraid to talk about it. This is part of the understanding of Western civilization, Judeo-Christianity, and even Islam. So this has a long-standing belief within, uh, within modern men. And you had first-hand experience as a guard working with extremely dangerous prisoners, including serial killers. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, I'm a retired Los Angeles deputy sheriff. Uh, it's the largest sheriff's department in the world. But out of the academy, you have to work several years in the county jail before you get assigned to a patrol station. And so my first assignment right out of the academy in 1983 was in the Los Angeles County Jail, which is the largest jail on planet Earth. Uh, and it was there as a rookie cop. I'm 21 years old. I'm, I'm right out of the academy. You know, yes, sir. No, sir. Uh, I get assigned to different parts of the jail and uh, I did a rotation on this one part of the jail that made a lasting impression on me till this very day, which was called the mentally ill offenders unit. And that was a section in the jail where we kept in the, you had the worst killers of the Southwest in the United States, the worst mass murderers, psychopaths, sociopaths, and, uh, I think I did a three-month stint there, and it was there where my eyes were fully open to this, the world of the angels and the demons. And it's something, by the way, Sean, that I'd grown up being taught this as a young Catholic, but I was more secular in my understanding. I was more worldly, and I kind of put those things off. But it was that experience in the L.A. County Jail as a rookie deputy sheriff that really opened my eyes to the invisible realities uh, that are in this world. Were there any famous serial killers there? Yes, there was. Back when I was there, anybody who's from the Southwest will know these names. Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. He was one. You had the Freeway Killers. They were in there. You had uh, the Hillside Strangler. He was in there. You had the Menendez Brothers. Uh, they were in there. So, yeah, back in the early 80s when I was there, there was an assortment of, of mass murders that were 
high profile in the media. What extra precautions did you have to take when dealing with that class of inmate? Um, the, the LA County Jail is very secure. All those inmates, those high security inmates, you know, uh, they're, they're in a one man cell. So they're, they're all in solitary confinement. And there's a row, that, you know, we call that a module, a module of about 200 cells. And they're all in their own cell. They have no contact with each other. You take them out individually for about 30 minutes a day. And you escort them with three officers uh, to the yard. And they get some uh, exercise time. But they have no contact with each other. They're fed in their cell. And you give them reading material. That's basically what you do. You, 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 you walk uh, down the hallway. Uh, you feed them three times a day. And uh, you give them reading material and maybe give them letters that people are writing to them and you take them off. For, and it's very controlled. When you take them out of the cell, they have to put their hands outside of the cell. You handcuff them. You open up the cell. It's a three-man escort and a sergeant anywhere you take them. So it's, it's very secure. Did, were there ever any lapses of security and uh, dangerous consequences? Not while I was there and not, not since, not that I've ever heard, the LA County Jail is probably one of the most secure units on planet Earth. It's very sophisticated. And so, uh, no, there is, uh, there's just absolutely barring an act of God for anything, anything uh, bad to happen. It's, very, uh, it's a very controlled environment. So people think Satanism is just something that they use in Hollywood movies to get viewers and to terrify people. And as I've been researching this more thoroughly, I've come across cases here in the UK, and it is a really um, dark place to go when you're researching it. Now, you firsthand started to be told by some of these individuals that they were practicing Satanism when they committed their crimes? Yeah, here's, here's what I found very interesting, Sean. I'm 21 years old, I'm a rookie, I'm basically right out of high school and college, and I get, get into police work. And so I got a degree in criminal justice, so you know my mind is very you know criminal justice oriented. Uh, as I started looking at these 200 inmates that I was assigned in the mentally ill offenders unit to basically babysit, you're a high-paid babysitter in the county jail for eight hours, feed them, give them reading material, take them to go work out 30 minutes a day, I started noticing uh, that a lot, of these, a lot of these inmates had killed in the name of Satan. And they admitted it. How do I know that? Because I remember I asked my lieutenant, I said, sir, I said, in between some of the downtime of walking up and down the row, I said, I'm kind of interested to see who these inmates are. I know, I know they're supposedly the worst inmates that we have in the jail. I want to know who they are. Can I read about their crimes? The lieutenant says, yeah, in between your duty of feeding them and giving them, uh, giving them uh, reading material and taking them out of the jail cell for exercise, in my office, we have all their police reports, all their psych evals, and all their probation reports. So you can read in between your work, you can read about each one of them. So I did. I read about all 200 inmates that I, or I was babysitting there. And I remember I, I got a piece of paper and I started drawing little sticks. Every time I read a report where these inmates admitted to the detectives, police, uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, and probation officers that they killed in the name of Satan, 
I put a little stick on a little piece of paper. At the end of about two weeks, when I read all the data on all the inmates that I was that I was guarding and protecting in my custody for eight hours a day, I noticed that about six, six out of 10 of these inmates, these sociopaths, these psychopaths had claimed that they had killed for Satan or that a demon told them or that a demon lived in them and was telling them, uh, giving them orders. And so I remember I told my lieutenant, I said, sir, and my sergeant, I said, sir, I read all these police reports. They go, what? You read everything? I said, I read everything. I mean, I'm here eight hours a day. I read every single report on all these guys here. Did you know? I mean, I'm a rookie cop. I'm 21 years old. I'm wet behind the ears. I said, sir, did you know that most of these inmates here claim themselves that they've killed because of the devil, because of Satan, because of a demon? They were impelled to. They said, what? That's fascinating. They said, maybe this is information we should give to our homicide bureau. And so uh, they called homicide and said, hey, this rookie Romero read every single police report and he did, the, he did the statistics. Did you know this? So I, I gave them this information. As a result of what I did there, the LA Sheriff's Department, which is the largest Sheriff's Department on planet Earth, they ended up making uh, a unit of detectives for occult crimes. As a result of the fact that a, a curious rookie had given them information that a lot of these killers kill for the devil, kill for Satan, according to their own words, not stuff that I'm saying. And so the LA Sheriff's Department and the LAPD, two hugely prestigious and large law enforcement agencies, opened up an occult crime section as a result of this data. So I stirred the pot a little bit as a rookie cop. Wow, that is fascinating. Well done. And reading all those reports, Jesse, did you read the crimes, what they had done, and, and you know what was what was how grotesque was it the things that they've done? Sean, it was dark. It it was dark. I, I can just tell you, uh, aside from I mean these guys weren't the typical you know gang member. I'm going to get a, a rifle and shoot it out my my car as I'm driving by and shoot somebody in the neck during a party. These were cold, calculated, dark things that these people were doing, a lot of it involved cannibalism. That's all I can tell you. Uh, it was dark, it was macabre, it was, it was cutting up body parts and mailing body parts to the victim's family. Um, yeah, the, the things that these, see, I, I'm, I was used to dealing with gang members in, 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 in Southern California, I grew up in an area with a lot of gangs. I worked in gang areas my whole career, but I noticed that the satanic killers, it was, it was a cut above the typical Hispanic, black gang member, Asian, Caucasian gang member. You know, they'll get a knife and stick somebody in the belly in a, in a bar over a, a drug deal gone bad. But these crimes, that were purportedly done in the name of Satan were so twisted that I'm, I tr I'm trying to forget them to this day. Oh, good grief. All right, let's not go there then. Now, the most famous serial killer you mentioned so far was the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Half of my viewers are here in the UK. Probably a few of them have heard of him. Maybe some of them haven't. Could you just explain who he is and what it was like to deal with him on a, you know, in the jail? I had a lot of conversations with him. 
Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker, uh, he was a drifter, kind of a vagabond from El Paso, Texas. He was Hispanic, uh, kind of a troubled kid. He made his way from El Paso, Texas to Southern California, okay, from Texas. To, so he crossed three states and he lived as a homeless drifter in Southern California. But he was, according to his own words, he was uh, a Satanist. He, he admits that he made a pact with Satan, okay? In Southern California, in the 80s, he terrorized Southern California because there was a series of women, most of them prostitutes, not all of them, most of them prostitutes that were turning up dead. And it was, uh, they were dying horrendous, very dark, macabre deaths. In fact, there was even, you know, evidence of uh, necromancy. There would be sex with their dead bodies after. And so law enforcement in Southern California was, uh, was on high alert for this serial killer that was picking off young ladies. And, uh, and here was his MO. Here's what he did, generally. And at nighttime, and by the way, that's just... Uh, that's just the way most criminals operate. They like the cloak of darkness. And what's interesting also is that's also the way demons, and, 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 and when you study angelology, you'll find that demons, they also like to, uh, they heighten their attacks in the evening. They like the cloak of darkness. But to go back to Rich Ramirez, here's his MO. He would go at night to people's, he jumped the fence into people's backyards, and he would, he would jimmy the doorknob. If it was open, he would go inside, you know, one, two, three in the morning. If there was a man in the house, he would kill him in his sleep, put a pillow over his head, shoot him, stick a sword right through him as he sleep. And then he would have his way with the woman, with the wife. And then he would kill her after in a very dark, macabre style. And so he did this to about 30 some odd women. And so Southern California, I remember because I was a young man back then, just starting to work in law enforcement. Everybody was locking their doors at night. They were buying dogs. They were, uh, you know, installing alarms. Uh, there was a height, heightened awareness because of what he was doing. And it was, I mean, just your worst nightmare for somebody to walk into your bedroom and kill you in your sleep. So he was finally apprehended in East Los Angeles. I know the guys that arrested him. They're guys that friends of mine from the East LA Sheriff's Department. They arrested him in East LA because they started putting his picture. They, they kind of drew a composite description, the police department, and they were able to kind of figure out how he looked. They put his picture on all the major media and the citizens of East LA, as he was trying to steal a car to get to go to another, to, to go commit another crime, the citizens of East LA recognized him and said, that's the Night Stalker. And they apprehended him and they were, they almost beat him to death. They were trying to beat him. The sheriff's department pulled up and got the people out and arrested him and took him to the jail. Had they not got there, they would have beat him to death. So when he gets, booked in and uh now you have a, a, a dna evidence and saying this is the guy that's killed 30 some women in southern california he had a high profile case every day for the cameras he used to like to 
he used to like to uh, gloat in front of the cameras as he would walk out of the court he would hold his right palm up and he had a pentagram a circle with a five-pointed star and he would hold it to the camera every day as he would leave the courtroom and he would say hail satan and so it was very open he was very open about his satanism when i would pick him up in the morning and i would take him from his jail cell to the bus the black and white bus that takes the prisoners a few blocks into the criminal courts building in downtown LA. I remember Richard Ramirez, and he was always cooperative. He never gave us any problems as an inmate. But I noticed in his jail cell, this is back in the early 80s, the only thing that he read all day, he had a stack of pornography, probably about three feet high, okay? A stack of pornography magazines. And then he had a satanic Bible. It's called, it's called the Satanic Bible. That's all he read every single day. Pornography and the Satanic Bible. And uh, again, he never spoke about his case as we were, again, as he was going through trial, he never said anything to us. He was just basically, yes, no, yes. After he got convicted, he got convicted, I think, of 13 murders. They were unable to to convict him of 16 others that he later told me and many others, he laughed. He goes, you guys will never get me for the others because you guys don't know where the bodies are at. And I killed the witnesses and stuff, what have you. But we did find him. We did the sheriff's department's homicide unit convicted him of 14 murders. So he went to death row in California, but I had a lot of conversations with him. And I'll tell you one of the things that, that, uh, that struck me. Okay, I'm 21 years old, and again, I'm not very, I'm not a very committed Catholic. Uh, uh, we'll just say I was a bad Catholic. How's that? Okay. Uh, but I did have Catholic sensibilities because I went to Catholic school. Here's to me what had. This is my epiphany. This is where my mind, for the first time, I said, "Huh, maybe this thing of angels and demons and God and Satan. Maybe this, maybe there is something to it. Maybe this is more than." you know, Hispanic cultural Catholic tradition. Maybe there's something deeply rooted in this. Here's what happened to me. I went to church. As Catholics, we go to mass. I went to mass in the morning before work because I worked the PM watch. I worked from four to midnight. So I went to mass and one of the readings during the Catholic mass, because in the Catholic mass, they read the Bible, several readings. So one of the readings I remember as, uh, as, as the word of God was proclaimed at mass uh, the reading was in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, where, where the Bible says, Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I remembered that. I said, hmm. Remember, I'm 21 years old. It's like 10 o'clock. I'm going to work at 4. And that stood in my mind. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. Immediately, I dismissed it. I'm 21 years old. I'm like, a, I'm like a young liberal, okay? I was a young, kind of a Catholic liberal. I said, phooey, anybody can say Jesus is Lord. That's not true. I like kind of like, you know, like, oh, brother. But out of mass, went home, got ready for work, took off to work. But that, that reading from the mass, that verse was in the back of my mind. Nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. So I get to work. Feeding time. It's dinner time for the inmates. 
And so in the, in the mentally ill offenders unit, again, you have the worst inmates in the Southwest there. Some of them have been already convicted. So they're awaiting transportation to death row. We're waiting for the Department of Corrections to pick them up to take them to death row. Some of them are still fighting cases like Richard Ramirez. So they're pre-trial. And so they don't, they don't give up any information. They don't say nothing to the officers that are guarding them. So I get to work. It's feeding time. And I say, hmm, Rich Ramirez is in cell number three, the Night Stalker. Ah, I'm just curious. As I'm feeding him, you know, we get the tray. We put it underneath. There's a space underneath the, 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 the cell door, the bars. So you feed the inmate. He receives the tray. And I said, hey, Ramirez. I'm just kind of curious. I said, uh, would you like a good meal today? Because again, the inmates, the 15,000 inmates, they ate like uh, this food that was made in bulk. Okay. We made, there's like almost the size of jacuzzis. That's how we would make the soup and the porridge and whatever. So I said, how would you like to have a good meal? He says, of course I would. Because the inmates all knew that the officers, we had our own little special dining room. We ate very well. And so I asked them, I said, yeah. I said, this, I don't know, I'm just curious. Can you say Jesus is Lord? I'll tell you what, if you say Jesus is Lord, um, I'll go get you whatever you want. Order up. I got the key. I'll get you whatever you want from the officer's dining room. He goes, is that all I got to do? I said, yeah, just humor me. Ramirez. Say Jesus is Lord. So, Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, he like, no, no problem. I mean, he wanted a good meal. He'd been there for about, he'd already been there like almost three years fighting his case. <laughs> so I said, go ahead. He said, no problem. He goes, Gee. and as he tried to say the name Jesus, which rolls out of my tongue quite easily, he's trying to say Jesus, and he can't. I'm there. Two other rookie cops were there. They're looking. At first, I'm thinking, eh, he's messing with me. He's messing with me. Then I notice that he's physically in pain as he's, he goes, and I notice he starts holding his neck, and it looks like if somebody, if something is physically choking him. Now, he's, he's, making the noises as somebody is exasperated like if he's choking and he's grunting he's trying to say something but he can't it, it's almost like if like if he had cement or glue in his mouth it was just locked shut and he's trying to say and you can see that he's physically in pain and i'm looking at him now as he's, he's holding his neck he's he's acting as if something's choking him and he's trying to pull something out I see his face, it turns uh, several shades of red, like an apple, and his face becomes, his face, his countenance becomes angry, like he's in pain, but also angry. And I remember at that moment, in that section of the jail, uh, the temperature just dropped. And the other two rookies that were with me, they said, whoa, it got cold in here. And I could just see, I could, I could just see him. He drops down to one knee and I'm like, what's going on here? I could feel a cold chill, whether it was psychosomatic or real, I could feel a cold chill coming from his jail cell 
all over all of us. And again, this guy, he's grunting and growling in pain. He's trying to save Jesus is Lord and he can't do it. I remember I looked at my, my partners. They looked at me. They go, Romero, this is freaky. Knock it off. Stop. So we closed the door, the steel door, and we continued going down the row to feed other inmates. And it was at that moment where I'm saying, what? I heard five hours ago at the Catholic Mass, nobody can say Jesus is Lord except by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, physically cannot say Jesus is Lord. That for me was a huge slap in the face. And it was funny because what I did, because remember there's 200, there's 200 prisoners in solitary confinement in these cells. And I knew because I had made with a list of paper, I had put all the cells where all the satanic killer was at, like cell number one, cell number seven, cell number nine, cell number 11, cell number 14. So I said, in my mind, I said, maybe Richard Ramirez is messing with me. Okay. Maybe just, he just, he just having, uh, you know, he just has this morbid sense of humor and he's trying to get a reaction from the officers. So we kept on feeding the inmates. I think three cells down, there was another satanic killer. And so, you know, we fed him and I told him the same thing. And they can't hear the conversations because they're all in solitary cells and the doors are closed. So I go to this next inmate, another satanic killer, and I ask him, hey, said, hey, same thing. Hey, you want to get a good meal today? I'll go get you whatever you want from the officer's dining room. Just humor me. Can you say Jesus is Lord? Sean, here's what freaked me out. I did the exact same thing, and these guys had no contact with each other. These guys, two other satanic killers in that same area of the jail, mentally ill offenders unit, they had virtually the same reaction that Richard Ramirez had. They physically could not say the name Jesus. There was, it's like, of again, like if they had a steel wire, like if their jaws were broken, just they just locked shut and they started grumbling and growling and pain and they couldn't say it. Now, I asked other inmates there that were non-satanic killers, get this, because, you know, not, not all of them had killed for the diabolical. There's just many of them that were just, you know, vicious gang members or what have you, or just people that are just, uh, you know, have some sort of, uh, just some sort of darkened intellect. I asked some of these other non-satanic serial killers, if they can say Jesus is Lord as I fed them, I asked two or three, no problem. Officer, Jesus is Lord. Boom. Here's your meal. I'll go get you your, your, the, the, what I promised you. It, the only ones that were not able to say those words were the satanic killers. It, I remember I drove home at that day in the evening, and that, that threw me for a tailspin as a young Catholic, uh, especially a young, and a young officer. I said to myself in my mind, I said, for the first time, I said, hmm, maybe the Bible is true. Maybe it's true. Wow, what an amazing story. Now, it sounds like in your dealings with the satanic serial killers, you're a very fur person. You said you've read the case files. 
and there's these grotesque details that you'd rather forget. But at the time, the details are probably fresh in your mind. Now, we all have this human reaction, you know, if someone's killed a kid or killed a woman, we want to mess with that person, maybe like, you know, make it as hard as possible on them. How did you separate that natural retribution force to become someone who dealt with everybody fairly? Because I was able in my mind to understand, and this is the way I look at the world, even right now, it's, as we see uh, insurrection and anarchy in our cities, I've always had an understanding, and this comes from my Catholic childhood, it comes from Catholic thought, actually, and I've always understand that there's two teams in the world. There's the good guys and the bad guys, and everybody has to make a decision. There's no middle team. You're not on the, you're not on the dugout. You're either part of the sons of light or the sons of darkness. This is a concept that was instilled in, by my Hispanic parents when I was a kid. They would tell me in Spanish, you're a son of the light. You're, you, you're called to be to promote what's good and beautiful and true. And I've always seen people that, that promote evil. They're sons of, the, sons of darkness. And a lot of the times, Sean, it's through no fault of their own. A lot of the times... They've just grown up uh, with no fathers, with no discipline. They've grown up in horrible situations. I mean, I know some of the people that have grown up that their dad's a Satanist, their mom's a witch. They've been consecrated as a kid, uh, you know, to the occult in, in a black mass. And, 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 or just some people that, again, have no concept of virtue. They've never been taught moral excellence, goodness, beauty. And so... As a result of that, I think a lot of people, I saw a lot of these inmates, these were grown men, but in their mind, I, I could see that they were mental, mental misfits because nobody had ever taught them uh, the, 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 uh, the, the virtues of goodness and, 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 and beauty and truth. Uh, and so to me, it's very simple. A lot of the guys that were in jail and people that I dealt with as a policeman, I look at them and... I say to myself, the words of St. Augustine, but by the grace of God, there go I, Jesse Romero. If I didn't have good parents, like I had simple, pious Catholic parents from Mexico who taught me simple virtue, who taught me faith, who taught me the golden rule, who taught me decency. And so instead of pointing fingers at some of these people, I learned very early on, a lot of these people didn't have the benefit of the upbringing that I had. And so... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let the Lord be the judge of them at the end of time. At this moment, uh, you know, I'm just trying to, uh, I'm just trying to uh, work out my own salvation, if you will, you know, in fear and trembling. Well, that's a very compassionate approach to look at the root causes of what caused the crimes. I commend you for that psychological insight. So, if a guard treats the inmates fairly, it could go in two ways. The respect can be reciprocated. Or they can view it as weakness and try and take advantage. Did any of these guys test you? Absolutely. They, they test you all the time. And, uh, but I'll, I'll tell you also, one of the things that inmates, they understand is a sense of fairness. And so I, as, 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 a, you know, as, a, as a man of faith, you know, even in, with a deputy sheriff's uniform, um, being a peace officer, being a policeman or a deputy sheriff, it's, it's, 
a God ordained vocation. It's it's in the Bible. It's it's it, God smiles upon those people that would give themselves to a life of service in the government to try to bring harmony and 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 uh, and, and and peace within a city. And so it's 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 a uh, God smiles upon that profession. So I always understood very early on as a young man. My parents told me the profession that you've chosen is something that has basically an anointing, the hand of God upon it. You can be you can be uh, faithful to that calling, or you can do the job and become uh, and let the job corrupt you. But just remember that, in and of itself, uh, this is this is one of those very necessary lines of work to keep peace and harmony in our societies. So I've always seen it as a very I saw it as a very special vocation, and I still do. Anybody who puts the uniform on and is willing to go out there and uh, put their life on the line to to keep harmony and civility in a society. Uh, th those are the real heroes to me. Could you give an example of a prisoner testing you or anything that could have gone seriously wrong? Yeah, uh, I'll give you, uh, I'll give you, you know, one, one example. Uh, a lot of times prisoners will bait you. I mean, they're, you know, they're, they were inside the jail cell stuff. And so, uh, They'll throw urine at you in a cup. That's one of the common things that they do, or, or fecal matter from a cup, okay, as you're walking by, uh, along with the, you know, the, the bad words and the F-bombs. Uh, you know, this, this one instance where I saw this one inmate that was agitated, that was throwing all kinds of uh, caustic parts from his, you know, uh, excrements from his body outside at the other at the other uh, inmates, at the and at the other officers, I remember I told them, I said, "Look it," I said, "We're going to open up the jail cell right now, and we're going to handcuff you and we're going to extract you. I'm going to tell you right now, okay? What you've done is vile. This is this is this is intolerable. What you've done, but I'm going to tell you right now, okay? And just know." Don't resist because then we're going to use the proportion and force necessary to overcome your resistance and you're not going to like it. I, I said, we're going to be fair. You've already sprayed several of the officers with urine and stuff. I said, when we open up the cell, turn around, get on your knees, put your hands behind your back, and we're going to take you and put you in solitary confinement for your actions. I said, uh, but it's going to go no further than that. Don't resist. I would do that very often, Sean, in the LA County Jail, and the inmates knew that I was firm but fair. And they knew, they said, Deputy Romero, if if you cross the line with him, yes, he will use that proportionate force necessary to gain your compliance if you're a recalcitrant, belligerent inmate. And so I did have the reputation from inmates in there that he's firm, he's forceful, but he's fair. And that's all you can ask for. And when you do that, the word gets out throughout the jail system and they know uh, they, your, your reputation precedes you. And uh, some of the inmates would, would even ask me sometimes, um, officer, you, you're, you're a man of faith, are you? I wouldn't get deep into those conversations with them because, you know, again, 
you can't frat fraternize with inmates. That's against the policy of the sheriff's department. You can't get that personal with them, but they can kind of see the way you conduct yourself. They would talk amongst themselves and they knew which were the officers that were officers that were compelled or moved by faith and which ones were not. They can see it. They can discern it. And without even saying anything, my actions just spoke, just spoke about my character. And that's, uh, that was kind of a silent witness. Wow. You said there was a kind of occult task force set up after you made that report. Did that task force go on to tackle any high-profile crimes? Yeah, the, the task force was basically an intel agency within the Sheriff's Department, the LA Sheriff's Department, to gather information of, of something that, that wasn't uh, the, the Sheriff's Department wasn't even aware of. They started tracking and working with homicide to see how many subversive groups out there had satanic underpinnings and how many homicides in Los Angeles County were actually as a result of satanic or occult homicides. And so, so this, this became attached to the homicide unit as, uh, as basically a subdivision of it, trying to parse between regular homicides of somebody maybe that's just under the influence of alcohol or drugs or a gang member who wants retaliation versus the homicides that were as a result of, uh, of again, this, this mind control as a result of the occult. So this unit became attached to homicide. I believe it's still there today. Was there a satanic element in what Charles Manson did? Yeah, well, Charles Manson, he had, uh, he admits himself, and this, I was born right around when Charles Manson, I was a kid, when Charles Manson uh, committed his macabre murders, and he actually didn't commit them. He sent people out there. He had such a powerful presence and mind control that he sent his followers, his gurus out there to commit some mass murders in Southern California. He lived in the hills of Simi Valley, which is about 15 minutes away from my house. Uh, so I, I grew up in and around that area where Charles Manson committed many of his mayhems. And uh, Charles Manson, I mean, you could look at him on YouTube. I mean, he's, he's, I, I'm almost positive he passed away. Uh, and so did Rich Ramirez. Both of them are dead now. They died in the prison system. But Charles Manson, you could watch his interviews on YouTube. He would openly say, I mean, he would go back and forth. He would say that he's the devil. And then he would say that he's Jesus Christ. So you could see that he had fragmented thoughts. I mean, this is classic schizophrenia, where again, there's this multiple personality disorder. By the way, that's a sign of the diabolical, okay? You'll find Catholic exorcists that use psychologists, and they'll see that somebody who is diabolically afflicted, like Charles Manson, uh, their thoughts are fragmented. They go from one kind of a cogent thought to another thought that's completely incompatible within the same sentence. Like he'll say, I'm Satan. Oh, I'm Jesus Christ. That's called a fragmented thought. That's a classic sign of diabolical affliction because that's what the diabolical does. They, they attack the thoughts and the mind and they divide the way you think. So how do you distinguish then between mental illness and the demonic 
the Catholic Church has been around for 2,000 years. They have, they have a criteria of how they do that. And in fact, the Catholic Church in modern times, what they do is you'll have what's called exorcism teams. Okay, It's a priest, and then you have hand-picked lay people by the priest. And in all the teams, there's always a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And so he's the assessor. He's the one that really ends up definitively telling the priest, this is not mental illness. This person is completely sober, rational, sober-minded. Uh, he's lucid. He has all his component parts. He, his intellect is intact. This is, this is something outside of the norm. So it's, it's the assessor in these teams that will make that determination. But one of the ways that the Catholic Church determines this is they have, there's kind of a, a fourfold test to see if somebody's possessed. And this is a very ancient model protocol. It goes back to the Middle Ages. It hasn't changed. And uh, the fourfold protocol is, for example, somebody with mental illness and somebody who's diabolically possessed, though oftentimes their manifestations are the same, the way they the way they 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 uh, they speak. Uh, their mannerisms, their their body, their body postures, their movements, though they're similar, here's where priests are able to discern the difference between mental illness, uh, just just plain mental illness and the diabolical, because also the diabolical they also prey on mental illness, because they're able to hide themselves behind mental illness. So those are those are like red meat for them. Because people are already going to dismiss anything by saying, oh, that guy's got mental illness, just give him his medication. So they really relish on going after that. But the, dis the distinction is this. So, and I've seen it. I've been in sessions where I've seen this. Somebody who has straight mental illness, a priest will give them a blessed object. Like this, I got it here. This is a blessed crucifix used in exorcisms. It's called the St. Benedict. This is the actual crucifix used. They'll give it to somebody who's possessed. If they're possessed and they put it in their hand, there'll, there'll be a very strong negative reaction. They'll start, it burns. They'll start getting angry. Get this away. They'll fling it. It's painful to them. They have a revulsion towards blessed objects. If it's somebody that just has plain mental illness, no diabolical affliction, you can give them a holy blessed object that's blessed by an exorcist, and they'll look at it and say, all right, so what do you want me to do with this? Yeah. So that is, the, that is the criteria because somebody who just has plain mental illness will not have aversion to holy objects. Somebody who does immediately, this triggers them. It triggers them immediately. Another sign of possession would be You'll see the person that's, that's possessed, diabolically possessed, they will start speaking in languages that they've never studied. They'll start speaking in languages that they've never studied. And, and people will say, uh, and, and they'll have perfect command of languages that they never studied. Another sign of diabolical possession will be is that uh, somebody who's diabolically possessed, they have 
abnormal physical strength. You'll have a an 110 pound, you know, Hispanic woman who when the demon manifests and the word manifestation means when the demon puts the human person in a trance-like condition and the demon appropriates their senses and the demon appropriates their limbs. That's called manifestation. You'll see, for example, in a 110-pound Hispanic woman who's in her 40s, that when the demon manifests and is, and is triggered, she will have the strength, this incredible strength that will take five or six guys to hold her down, and she's literally throwing some guys off of her like a bouncing ball. And, and probably the, the last criteria of demonic possession, those are the four criteria in the Catholic Church, is that a person who's truly possessed, they have hidden knowledge of, uh, of, of, of events in people's lives that they shouldn't know. For example, I've seen, I've seen in a session where this one person was on the team and the woman who was possessed the demon speaks through the, the person when they're under the trance. The demon will speak. And the demon told this one guy in the team, says, your prayers have no power. Hey, how was that? Uh, how was your girlfriend on Friday night in the motel in room 644? Boom. So the possessed person, the demon spoke to somebody who was on the exorcism team. Because if you're on a team with a priest, you're called to live a clean life, a life of purity. You are. I'll just be honest with you. That's why it's a high calling for a lay Catholic. You're expected to live a pure, clean life, even sexually pure. Especially, even sex, I'm, I'm married. I've been married for 37 years to the same woman. Even sexually pure with your wife, okay? And so, it, it, a demon will call out somebody's sins specifically on the team. If somebody is living an impure, unclean, disordered life, and I've seen it. So those are the four criteria of possession according to 2,000 years of Catholic teaching. Uh, speaking an unknown language, number two, abnormal physical strength. Number three, uh, the ability to disclose hidden and unknown events. And number four, aversion to holy objects, aversion to the name of God, aversion to the name of Mary, aversion to a Catholic saint, aversion to religious objects and icons. Now, somebody with mental illness may have abnormal physical strength sometimes, um, but they won't have the other, the other criteria. Wow, I'm just learning so much today. When you read the case files, did it disclose how the satanic serial killers were introduced to Satanism? For example, had they watched The Exorcist or they managed to get a copy of the satanic Bible from a bookshop? Most of the people that I read about their cases in the LA County Jail and most of the people that I've been dealing with ever since as I help out in, in, uh, in teams, in, in, in exorcism teams in the Catholic Church, most of the cases people are recruited just like anything else you'll find you know seasoned occultists seasoned satanists they look at marginalized human beings people that are say like lonely maybe widowed maybe 
kind of like nerdy kids, kids that are like kind of, uh, uh, you know, not accepted by, by their peers, uh, you know, loners, drifters, they, 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 they go, they go after people that are wounded, people that have wounded emotions. And here's the draw to Satanism. Here's the way they get these, what I would call, and I say it in a nice sense, low information, intellectual people, low information in terms of they, they don't know, uh, the meaning and purpose of life. They're just kind of like, you know, drifting through life day by day, kind of lonely, don't have many friends They're not, they're not very sophisticated in thought. These are the people that Satanists go after oftentimes, not only them, they also go after the rich and famous and they got, that's a whole nother section of Satanism is the rich and the famous. But talking about some of these, what, you know, the Charles Manson, the, uh, the Richard Ramirez type Satanists, these guys are the, the guys living on the street, kind of the, you know, the drifter guys, they have this rebellious spirit, this, you know, anti-authority spirit. Those are easy pickings for these occult groups because they say, hey, here's the key, Sean. They always promise them when they're recruiting them to Satanism or the occult, they have promised them two things, three actually. And this is the draw. They say, how would you like power? How do you like power over your enemies? Don't you have a lot of people that have hurt you? Yeah, I do. How do you like power over them? Wow. How do you like prosperity? How, how do you like to make a lot of money? Change your fortune from being a nine to five blue collar worker. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to make a lot of money. How do you like sexual pleasure? How do you like that woman to fall in love with you? That woman that won't even give you the time of day at work. How do you like to put a spell on her and make her fall in love with you? Oh, I would love that. The draw of the occult is always, they always promise, of course, for a fee, um, power, especially power of your enemies, uh, prosperity. You're going to have financial success. And uh, you're going to have also sexual prowess. You're going to be attract attractive to people, uh, and people will fall in love with you. So we've seen a lot of headlines about the Epstein case, especially here in the UK. How does pedophilia fit into Satanism? Pedophilia is one of probably the darkest components. That's uh, that without a doubt is uh is rooted in satanism why because we know this that according to islamic jewish and catholic and protestant theology we know that the devil hates children so all the all the monotheistic religions that's part of the divine revelation the tradition is that the devil this fallen angel this 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 angelic entity who rages with pure hate at this point because he has a father wound, because he's been banned from heaven. He hates children. Why? Because children are the most innocent amongst us. In fact, in Christian thought, we're told that in, in order for us to get to heaven one day, we must have faith like a child in God. That means docility. That means humility. That's hard for modern men. We're narcissists by nature. We're arrogant. We're prideful. And so... This whole pedophilia thing, this is diabolically oriented because even in the Old Testament, going back to Judeo-Christian history, you have 
entire groups of people that practiced uh, that practiced child sacrifice and child abuse. This was part of the ritual sacrifice that they offered to pagan deities in the Old Testament, like like Moloch, uh, this this god that that thrived on the blood of children, on the abuse of children. And so this, without a doubt, because these are the most in it. In fact, once again, this is what God in the Judeo-Christian understanding concept, he wants us to have this docile faith like a child to get to heaven. And this is why Satan targets these innocent little ones through abortion, through human sex trafficking, uh, you know, just through child abuse, because every human being is made in the image and likeness of God, and they're the most vulnerable amongst us. Why do you think someone like Prince Andrew would have sex with a trafficked teenage girl? It, it, that's not difficult to answer, Sean. All of us as human beings, we have a fallen nature, okay? And if our interior mechanism isn't properly ordered and what i mean by i'm gonna say as a catholic my interior mechanism my soul my intellect my will if it's not properly ordered by the word of god because now i got a compass now i got a north star if if my interior mechanism is not properly ordered following the north star which is the word of god then my exterior mechanism is going to be disordered it's simple Prince Andrew, anybody who's been to the Epstein Island, the Antifa uh, 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 riots right now, these are human beings that have an internal disorder, okay? For them, they don't have order. They don't have an understanding of authority. They don't have an understanding of obedience. They don't have an understanding of civility. They have a Luciferian spirit. What does the Luciferian spirit mean? Me, myself, and I, mine, give it to me. I deserve it. I want it now. I want that TV. I'm going to break the window. I want that 14-year-old girl. I'm going to have sex with her. Why? Because I can. To The words of Bill Clinton. Why do you have sex with Monica Lewinsky? Because I can. That's the Luciferian spirit within man, that dark part, that has to be tempered. It has to be tempered by taking custody of your intellect by knowing what God is asking us of us, knowing the word of God. The, the golden rule is simple. Treat people like you want to be treated. If everybody would internalize that in their interior mechanism, our exterior behavior would be much different from what we see right now. We wouldn't be using each other. How evil do you think the Clintons are? I think the Clintons were probably in my lifetime probably the most organized evil couple in my lifetime and i tell you why you know you can look at like bonnie and clyde you know uh, uh this uh this uh, renegade you know uh cowboy and cowgirl you know uh, several decades ago that were you know robbing people robbing banks why are the clintons even more much more evil i'll tell you why because they have a farther reach than bonnie and clyde did just robbing banks okay or 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 this regular hooligan couple that lives in 
you know, Chicago or New York that's doing bad things, selling drugs out of their apartment. The Clintons have an international reach. And so, as Jesus says, to whom much has been given, if much power has been given to you, much will be expected. And so, a lot of the things that they've been involved in, I mean, just, just look at some of the evidence. Anybody who's crossed the Clintons ends up dead. There is a trail of blood of anybody who's double-crossed the Clintons or somebody who wants to expose them. Um, if That speaks volumes. And so, once again, they have international influence, which is what makes what they do much more evil than a Chicago or a New York or an L.A. Bonnie and Clyde. Wow, I concur. So, in Breaking Bad, they brought the hitmen over from Mexico. I remember watching those scenes. And before those two hitmen, I can't remember if they were brothers or what, they did some religious ceremony on, on the Mexican side. Could you explain to people what that religion is and what that ceremony was about? Say that again. You, you faded out right now. You faded out, then you came back in. Okay, so in Breaking Bad, do you remember the two hitmen that came from Mexico? No, I don't, Sean. I have to plead ignorance. I didn't want, that's a movie you're talking about, right? Yeah, it was with Walter White, this, this, the series on Netflix. Okay, well, well I have to watch it because I didn't. Before the hitmen hit came from Mexico to um, do the hit, they did a religious ceremony, like some, some kind of black magic ceremony that the cartel does in Mexico. What is that religion and what, what are these ceremonies about? Okay, um, Mexico right now, unfortunately, and that's the land of my parents. Half my family still lives there. I'm Mexican-American. I was born here, but most of my family still lives over there. Um, Mexico right now is steeped in this occultic religion called La Santa Muerte, which means holy death. And this is a, this is a religion that was started... Pro now, some people say it was started, uh, it's, it's, it's going back to the, the, the Aztec Empire, which may be true. You got some historians that are saying uh, this is basically uh, going back to Aztec practices, occultic practices. That may very well be true, but the Santa Muerte cult that's being practiced right now, this was started in the 60s by the cartels. The Mexican cartels are basically are there's about seven drug families that have cut Mexico up into a pizza. Think about Mexico, that's that country. It's broken up in about seven parts, and there's seven different families that are all vying for the control of the drug of the drug trade. And they're all powerful and they're vicious. They hire many people that I have just ex-convicts out of prison as enforcers. And so they have, they're, they're very sophisticated. And what I mean by that is, is uh, the people that are involved with Santa Muerte, it, it's basically the drug cartel religion of those that are marginalized, you know. And here's what they've done. They've got a military component. They have kind of a political component because they are they are basically 
they they grease the palms of a lot of the Mexican politicians. So the Mexican politicians do this. And so they give them free reign in Mexico as long as they get a little kickback. And then the Santa Muerte, what they've also done, there's also a religious component. They kind of understood, hey, we need to be protected in some way, shape, or form. And so what they've done is they started a religion back in the 60s. And it, it's, it's, it's essentially, it's a parody or, yeah, yeah it, it, they try to mimic Catholicism. It's a parody of Catholicism. And uh, what they believe in their demented way of thinking, they believe that if you... Uh, if you embrace this religion of Santa Muerte, which, by the way, it's it's a scale it's a skeleton with a grim reaper sickle, with a hood and a, like a, a, a dress, and uh, and they believe the cartels say if you worship and give your life to Santa Muerte, what will happen is you'll be protected from law enforcement. Uh, the bullets of law enforcement will go right through you. You'll be protected from your enemies. You'll receive, once again, power beyond your wildest dreams, even, even supernatural power. You'll have sexual pleasure beyond anything you've ever imagined. And so, again, the, the draw is always the same, even in witchcraft, even in, in, uh, in Macumba, in Voodoo, in Santeria. It's the same draw. It's this promise of power especially power over your enemies, uh, sexual pleasure, and prosperity, which for them means money. Wow, I've learned so much from you today, Jesse. I really appreciate your time. Is there anything you would like to say to people watching this in conclusion? Yeah, if, uh, if you want to learn more about this and stuff, you can listen to me. I do a podcast uh, every day, Monday through Friday, where I talk just like this, and I talk about the the, the occult, the diabolical, the preternatural. I take the issues of the day and I break them down. Uh, if, if just uh, uh, I've got an internet uh, radio station. It's called virginmostpowerful.org, virginmostpowerful.org, or vmpr.org. I do two podcasts a day. One is focused entirely on the occult and how to, how to uh, as a Catholic and as a person, uh, 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 as, a, as an American, how to look at these issues and how to, how to stay protected. Also, if uh, you want to learn more about some of these, these things, I wrote a book. It's called The Devil in the City of Angels. I think uh, you'll like the contents of the book because I go through a lot of this stuff and a lot of my actual stories as well. Yeah, if you can email over all those links um, to your podcast and everything, I'll yeah. put all those in the description box below this video. So I urge people to go down in the description box and check out Jesse's stuff. So again, thank you very much for your time, Jesse. Sean, thanks you for having me on, and uh, and uh, yeah, we'll do it again. We'll do it again.